Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey Ben, it's Aaron. Hey Aaron, it's Ben. So Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. How fitting then that we're the hosts of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely myself, Aaron Burns, and my buddy Ben White, who's covered the sport since the Xfinity series was called the Budweiser Late Model Sportsman series. We'll discuss contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've seen and heard through the years. You'll learn about where the sport has been, where it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. Ben, rolling right along. This is, uh, without a doubt... You know, we were choosing driver of the week this week. I felt like it was very appropriate that this being our ninth episode, the driver of the week be the person who is synonymous with the number nine, Bill Elliott. Uh, You covered him for a long time. I've talked to him both as a fan and as a journalist as well. But tell me what you think Bill's uh, presence in this sport has really meant to NASCAR. Oh, I'll tell you what, Aaron. It's been huge that uh, Bill Elliott has been a part of NASCAR all these years and you know what's so interesting about Bill is uh, well first of all he's sort of like Dale Earnhardt was uh, to fans people could relate to him so easily and he came from the North Georgia mountains and I never will forget the first time we heard him on Motor Racing Network uh, I believe it was mid-70s might have even been Darlington not sure exactly what race but there was this young kid going from the back of the field. His name was Bill Elliott from Dawsonville, Georgia. And they get on there and you just, his country mountain accent was so bad. You couldn't just about couldn't understand him. <laughs> and it was, I was like, what was that? <laughs> you know? And then as time went on, of course he was able to develop that, but I'm telling you, he, they just come from an awesome family. And, you know, we've heard all the Dawson, uh, the awesome bill from Dawsonville stuff over the years, but I do remember one quick story I can tell you about him. He said that his dad owned a junkyard and an auto parts store and uh, they, his brothers, Dan and, and Ernie, would all work on their own individual cars out of the junkyard, and they would move cars around enough to where they could make a short track inside of the junkyard. That's awesome. And so, yeah, and so, you know, Ernie had his car, all Fords, by the way, because uh, uh, Mr. Elliott uh, decided that he didn't, wasn't a big fan of Chevrolet. Matter of fact, he wouldn't even let people who owned a Chevrolet park in front of his Ford you know, his auto parts store because yeah. he was a big Ford guy. So anyway, back to the story in the junkyard, they made themselves a little oval and it was pretty evident pretty quickly that Bill was the better of the, of the three drivers. 
And of course, Dan and, and uh, Ernie, they love to work on the cars and do such. So no question, it was going to be Bill who, who was the driver. And he raced, of course, around uh, North Georgia and some in South Carolina and North Carolina back in the early 70s and then made his debut in, in NASCAR in the mid-70s. But yeah, just an awesome, I use that word, awesome guy from Dawsonville. Just a nice. Well played. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and he just just a good family, good bunch of guys who were uh, like all the rest of us. They weren't, uh, you know, bathing in money, if you will. His dad owned some businesses, but they weren't like rich, rich. Yeah. And they just they filled their own cars and they made it work. And even Bill himself, if you went in the garage and couldn't find him, look under the car because he was the one with the lanky you know, legs sticking out from under it. He was working on the chassis. So just such a great guy. It really speaks to how Southern Bill Elliott's accent is as, in a sport, you know, as as country as NASCAR was in the 1970s. They're like, wow, that guy sounds really Southern. Like everybody did, you would think. Uh, but yeah, Bill Elliott, to me, he was kind of, he took over the mantle from Kel Yarborough, who took over it from Richard Petty as a super speedway racing king. He had so much success at Daytona and Talladega before the days of the restrictor plates. And then, of course, even after they added the restrictor plates in 1987, he still had quite a bit of success. I remember him winning in a photo finish with uh, Rick Wilson at Daytona in July of 1988. But he had so much success on the big tracks. But Bill Elliott was really good everywhere. He won one championship, also in 1988. But he had a penchant for being, you know, the bigger the track, the faster Bill seemed to be. Uh, he went through a long dry spell in his career, didn't win a race from 1995 through 2000. And then he sort of just came back and when he got back up with, he had left the Melling team, drove for Junior Johnson. That worked out pretty well for a couple of years, nearly won the championship in 92, of course. And then uh, he goes and starts his own team, didn't win any races with them, had a lot of close calls, most notably probably the 97 Daytona 500, which I think we covered in a previous episode of how mm -hmm. close he came to winning that race. Then he gets up with Ray Evernham and the last couple of years of his career were pretty special. One quick story I'll say about Bill Elliott. You know, for all the success this guy had, and imagine being a Bill Elliott fan, like my mom, like my grandmother, like so many people, because the guy won most popular driver, you know, almost every year of his career. So clearly he had an, an enormous reach among race fans, not just in the Southeast. But I will never forget 2003 Ford 400 at Homestead Miami Speedway, last race of the 03 season, last race of NASCAR under the Winston Cup banner, Ben. Yeah, I and remember that, yep. Bill's leading the race. I was hanging out with one of my friends at his house, and we're watching it. He gets up for a minute to make some food or something, and he has Bill Elliott in his race pool. And as you guys know, some of you guys may have done race pools before. It's a big part of my childhood growing up. It seemed like everybody had a race pool. It was fantasy football, but NASCAR, before we had fantasy NASCAR. So, you know, I'm telling him what's happening, and he's like, oh, well, I guess Bill's going to win. That's awesome. So then I yell in the last lap, you know, Bill comes off a of turn two and he blows a tire. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Bill Elliott blew a tire. Bobby Labonte's going to win. And he's like, whatever, whatever. Doesn't believe me. <laughs> he thinks I'm just messing with him, you know. Yeah. And and I'm telling him, dude, I'm not kidding. I'm serious. Bill Elliott just blew a tire. He's not going to win the race. Bobby Labonte just won. And he's like, get out of here, man. I'm not listening to that. And I was like, <laughs> look at the TV. And Bobby Labonte at that time, they're showing Bobby Labonte winner Ford 400 Homestead. He's like, you've got to be kidding me. And I was like, I had no idea how it happened. It was so frustrating. You had to think because Bill had won the race before that at Rockingham. And we were all thinking like, man, what a great send off. And then it's he's going to end his full time career in NASCAR winning his last two races. Nobody before or since 
had such a spectacular potential for a send-off like Bill Elliott in 03 as a full-time driver at least. His last cup start was 2012, driving a Walmart car at Daytona, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he may have run one after that, but that race, the 03 Ford 400, you know, it was just one of those where everybody, I guess they thought Bill had this, uh, this Cinderella victory wrapped up. He had the fastest car, and as fate would have it, blew a tire on the last lap and didn't win. Um, but then Ben, you know, all the success Bill had, he won a couple of Daytona 500s. He won a championship. He's uh, such a deserving NASCAR Hall of Famer. He won most popular driver. He could have won most popular driver as long as he wanted until he finally ceded the title to Dale Earnhardt Jr., who pretty much carried on that mantle of winning it every year throughout his career. And now Bill's right. son Chase is doing that as well. But when we speak of the drivers of the nine car, Ben, I got to give a call to a guy who took over for Bill in 2004, and that's Casey Kane. I was at Rockingham when Casey came so close to beating Matt Kenseth in his second cup start in 2004. And from that moment on, you're like, man, this guy's going to be a superstar. And for several years there, he was, uh, had a bit of a, a you know downtime as a lot of guys do in the cup series. Really, everybody goes through a slump at some point. There's just, even when Jimmy Johnson went through the sophomore slump in his 16th season, it was like, all right, now we know everybody's susceptible to having a down year. And Casey mm-hmm. had a few of those, but picked it up late in his career, got with Rick Hendrick and won some more big races before he had to hang it up. Uh, unfortunately, early, due to some uh, some health concerns about him being able to hold up in the race car. But when he was at full speed, Casey Kane was very quick. But yeah, I, I don't think there's anybody who would argue when they think of the nine car, they think of Bill Elliott, or at least they think of the name Elliott now. Yeah, yeah, they do. And, and you know, if you look back at Chase Elliott's career, uh, driving for Rick Hendrick, he started off in the 24 car. A lot of people have forgotten that, and uh, pretty much as a replacement, uh, I guess for uh, well William Byron. I think also, uh, as you know, he runs the 24 as well. But the 24 right. was a was a flagship number for Hendrick, and and Chase didn't have as good a luck with 24, and he of course switches to number nine. Imagine that, and starts <laughs> starts winning everything. But that's uh, right. Yeah, just the number nine though. You're right. Immediately, you you associate that with the Elliott family, and and just a, another quick story about a Bill and the Elliotts. You know, if you look back at history, you look back at photographs, you'll see that there's a red and white number nine Mercury, that one of the first cars that they ran uh, as a family in the Cup Series. Well, ironically, that car actually came from Penske Motors or Penske Racing. And it, huh. before that, the year before that, had number two with, with Cam 2 motor oil on it, and that yeah. was a Bobby Allison car. Okay. And so they, it was one of those deals, we don't really have the money to paint the thing. So it's almost like, let's find a car that looks really good, and let's stick a number on it, and that way we can save money on paint. I mean, they really just didn't have the money to do what they were doing until Harry Melling come along and right. bought the team. And then, of course... Uh, sponsored them and and got them going and then you know Coors was their longtime uh, sponsor on the car. Mm-hmm. But just very quickly about Bill at Darlington, you know that year in 1985, we touched on this once before, but R.J. Reynolds put up a million dollars for whoever could win three of the big four or four races, and the Elliotts did it, and they really didn't have the money to pay. Him. <laughs> yeah, so they had to they had to scrabble a little bit to to loosen up a million bucks, but they just. What was so cool about the the Elliots, Dan, Ernie, and Bill? They just they're down home 
country folks like the rest of us. You know what I'm saying? They yep. they wanted to race. They wanted to be successful. Obviously, they they really. I don't. I would honestly argue that they weren't in it per se for the money. They just loved to race. They wanted to take on that challenge. And they were very successful at it, of course. And, you know, Bill went on to win a total of 44 races in his career. And, and by the way, talking about the number nine car, just I love doing this part of our show. But um, looking back at history, there was a gentleman by the name of Lynn Brown of New Jersey who ran the number nine for the very first time at Langhorn, uh, Pennsylvania. Wild Horn racetrack, yeah. Yeah, wild oval. You talk about oval, that was a, like an oval. It had no no straightaways it was yep. a circular racetrack and that was in 1949 the first year of the strictly stocks for nascar and then if you go back to october 26 1952 a gentleman by the name of herb thomas won in the number nine for the first time and that came at north wilkesboro speedway in north carolina so and then there was a, a couple other guys roy towner tyner ran the number nine for you know for many years throughout throughout the 60s uh, we saw it on Marcus Ambrose car yep. with the Petties. Won a couple races. Yep. Saw it with uh, Sam Hornish driving for the Petties in the number nine. But the most successful, of course, uh, with the nine was the Elliott, Bill Elliott and the Elliott family. And uh, that's what it, the nine is always, always, always going to be associated with that family. Yeah, there are just a few numbers, I think, that are very family-centric. Certainly, Ben, the nine is the Elliott's. You could say the three is the Earnhardt's. You could mm-hmm. also say it's the Childress's. But really, when you think the three, you think of Dale. You think of Dale Jr., uh, some could say the same for the eight, since Ralph also drove the eight car, and then right. you know the forty-three for the Petties. Uh, those are some of the the most famous ones. But you know, I, I got to throw out this interesting bit of of trivia. The All Star Race has existed for a long time. So the first All Star Race was nineteen eighty-five. Uh, ben, you'd been covering the Cup Series for a couple years. I was negative two and a half years old at the time when they first <laughs> ran it at Charlotte in eighty-five. So all these years they've run the All Star Race. It has been at Charlotte Motor Speedway. It, it's going to be at Texas this year. But to this point, it has been at Charlotte Motor Speedway all but two years. And the Elliott family, for all the years they're in the All-Star Race at Charlotte, has zero wins. They have run the All-Star Race once at Atlanta in 86 and once at Bristol in 2020. And the winner in 86 was Bill Elliott. And the winner in 2020 was Chase Elliott. So every time we've had an All-Star Race away from Charlotte Motor Speedway, the Elliott nine car has won the race. Kind of wild how that works out, but they just couldn't quite seem to get that luck at Charlotte for whatever reason. Bill won no. the pole for all-star race a couple times and, and never could, uh, could bring it home. I know that my mom would have been thrilled if, if uh, we saw him win when we went to the Winston in the 1990s, uh, he came close a couple times, but it seemed like the, the, the Winston in the 1990s, Ben was, if it was the early nineties, you had to beat Davey and Dale. If it was the mid to late nineties, you had to beat Gordon. And those were some pretty tough asks. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and I don't know what it, you're right. As you think about that, that's an interesting fact you brought up there. And well, thank I, you. If I, yeah. And I, <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. And, uh, I, you know, thinking back on that 85 season, it was at Charlotte, I believe that they handed the, the brake issues on the number nine, uh, Ford yep. and that took them out of contention to win the 600 that year. And that would have sealed the Winston million. So yeah, there's just times that drivers and I, and I'll be honest with you, Richard Petty's told me the same. He just didn't have the luck at Charlotte that he had at other racetracks. And he did win a, a world 600 Richard Petty did in 1975, yep. but it was just one of those tracks that, in the same respect that Bobby Allison struggled and struggled at Martinsville. 
uh, and couldn't stay off the brakes there and got so, so close to winning races at Martinsville and never could. And David didn't do as well as Martinsville. So I think you're right. I think sometimes it just kind of these tracks sort of lend to certain families. And, uh, uh, yeah, Daytona seems to be a, a track great for the Elliots, but Charlotte, not so much. Yeah, and it's interesting that throughout Bill's career, and now Chase's to this point, this very well could change this year, Elliott family's never won a Coca-Cola 600. It's kind of crazy. And honestly, the Earnhardt family only won two. For all of Dale's success at Charlotte, his only 600 wins were in 1986 and 1992. Dale Jr. came very close in 2000, and as well again in 2008, he was leading and uh I think he hit a lap car or something under caution, blew a tire. I think he hit a piece of debris on leading the race, still finished fifth. Um, then 2011, ran out of gas in the last lap. 2015 was another close call. He finished third. Uh, but, you know, there's been a lot of guys, Ben. It's not just uh, Bill and Chase Elliott or Dale Jr. There's a lot of guys who came close to winning the Coca-Cola 600 and didn't pull it off. Another one who's very top of mind for me is Tony Stewart. Tony mm-hmm. Stewart had a ton of success in his cup career. Pretty wild that the guy never won a Daytona 500 or a Coca-Cola 600 for how close that he came. He led both of those races in the closing laps and never won. In 2008, he been man, this is crazy to think about. 2008, let's go back to 2008 for a second. Jump back in the time machine. Um, Tony Stewart came so close to winning the Daytona 500 that year. He got passed. He was uh, trying to hold off the Penske cars at Kurt Busch and Ryan Newman. He couldn't do it late in the race. So he doesn't win the Daytona 500 when he was leading right there at the finish. Coca-Cola 600 2008. Dale Jr. dominates early going. He has that misfortune, you know, comes back, but it wasn't quite as competitive late in the race as he was in the the first half of the race. So it's Tony Stewart's night, right? Closing laps, Mm -hmm. Tony Stewart fires in at turn one, blows a tire. Has to come in and pit, like, I mean, the final couple laps, and Casey Kane snags another 600. So, yeah, very much the 600 for as long as that race is, yeah, I, I guess it's such a long race because, you know, you got to have 600 miles of luck because there's been a lot of guys that have won the Coca-Cola 599 and haven't won the 600. And Dale Jr. Yeah. and Stewart, a couple big names. Um, and Ben, obviously, we're, you know, we've been touching on this. Charlotte Motor Speedway is the, the track of the week this week uh, for the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Ben and I have a major history of the Speedway. Uh, we've both touched on it before. I work there now and, and have, uh, you know, for a, a while in the marketing department before that and public relations department. We've both collaborated, Ben, on on the Souvenir Race Program stories for years. Mm-hmm. I've been sure one of the tracks since I was four years old in 92 Winston, and you've been going. When's the first time you went to Charlotte, Ben? First time I went to Charlotte was 1983, October of 1983, and that's uh, – I was working, I still do, I work, was working with the Lexington, North Carolina Dispatch newspaper, been yep. with them 38 years. That's and, so crazy. Uh, yeah, I know. It's a, it's a pretty long tenure. I think Al Pierce with Auto Week magazine has got 41 years with one particular uh, uh, publication. So yeah, I think, I think I'm Al covered the 1911 Indy 500 for Auto Week. <laughs> I love Al, so, but yeah, I had to say that. Yeah. Al's cool. But yeah, the first race I saw there was 1983. Of course, I'd listened to a lot of Charlotte races on the radio back when I was growing up. Because yeah. my, my first race was Darlington, South Carolina in 1972 when I was 11. So I've been, you know, listening to races for many, many years, and I got into the journalism side in 1983. But yeah, I've always enjoyed going to Charlotte, and it's just it's a neat racetrack. It's one of those tracks you can see pretty well anywhere 
uh, around the track. Of course, they've made some major, major changes to the track and made it even better than it was. And, you know, for years, a lot of people... You're talking about bringing me back, right? That's what it was. That's all it was. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all knew that. You know, they could have spent millions of dollars, but no, no, let's save our money. Let's bring Aaron back. (laughs) It's the real difference maker, let's be honest. That's that's all done. The sun shines brighter and everything. But but there was years, though, and I'm sure you're familiar with some of this from reading about it or hearing about it. Between right in the infield area of turn three and four, there used to be a pretty big hill there. And it was hard. They, it was really hard to see what was going on. It's kind of like a landfill thing. And they finally smoothed the thing out over years and got it where you can see that area. But for a long time, there was you couldn't see very well in that, that corner. But, uh, yeah, but that uh, very quickly, though, Aaron, in the early days of the track's history, Bruton Smith and Curtis Turner, who was one of the great drivers, uh, built the track, but they ran into a lot of granite issues underneath the track, which made the cost of building the track triple what it should have been. Right. And, and it made, it backed it up a couple of years or year and a half from the time that they had planned on, uh, opening the track. So they had a lot, a lot, a lot of problems, you know, building the track, but once it was built and here we go, a, a very historic racetrack, but the first year or two, it was very difficult to, to get, going and then had some asphalt issues in the first race or two but yeah it's a it's an awesome racetrack great great place to visit so i'm going to tell an embarrassing story that i've i don't think i've ever told anybody this story um oh. i was I, I was hired at the speedway in 2016 in the pr department and every uh, in the winter time leading up to we used to do an event called speedway christmas if you live anywhere in the carolinas and probably outside of Carolina, as you know, it's the most spectacular Christmas shows in the Southeast. And I'm not just reading off an old press release I wrote. I don't have any of them around me right now. But um, <laughs> so we would have this event and it would it would be the opening night, you know, have all our lights on. The operations crew puts together this extravagant Christmas light show. It truly is remarkable. They The number of people who come and visit this every year, it continues to increase on an annual basis. And it's a credit to the hard work of the people who put together this light show. But so one time, I think it was in 2018, I was working with our videographer, Willie Brown, who's one of my best friends. And Willie and I were going around interviewing people, you know, to get B-roll to send to the TV stations on opening night of Speedway Christmas. So we're in the Cup Garage, or the, I'm sorry, the Xfinity Series Garage is where the Christmas Village is at Charlotte Motor Speedway. So it's where like you can go in there, you can get like eggnog, you can get your picture taken with Santa, all, all kinds of stuff. There's 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 you know things you can buy. You know it's it's a pretty cool little spot, and it breaks up the light show. So we're in there, and we just interviewed Marvin Williams of the Charlotte Hornets. Marvin was the kind of the grand marshal for us that night, and I'm kind of standing around. Um, Willie's getting some B-roll. So this lady walks by me, and. She's with uh, she's with her daughter. Her daughter's a few, four or five years old, and Lugnut, the Lugnut mascot, the the world's fastest mascot at Charlotte Motor Speedway, uh, is is there, and he waves at at the little girl, and the mom says, "Look, honey, the 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 mascot shaped like the building out front," and I was like, "Oh my God, it is." I've been coming here since 1992, and I never made the connection that they designed the Lugnut mascot's head to look like Smith Tower. <laughs> and I am going to get, I mean, you want to talk tarred and feathered if anybody hears that. Um, but I, I, I never made that connection. I was like, how did I not know that? And I didn't bring it up to anybody that night because <laughs> I was so embarrassed. <laughs> but I was like, how in the world? 
did I not see that? So like, if you have ever been to Charlotte Motor Speedway, you know, the, the really, really nice building that they have out front. Uh, I work up there and uh, along with many, many other incredibly professional, awesome, awesome human beings. And so when you see this building and the, you know, the shape of it, it's like a lug nut. And so I guess, I think Sam Bass probably designed lug nut and he looks like yeah. Smith Tower and, <laughs> you know, he created lug nut in 1994 and I didn't make that connection until some random lady walked by me and pointed out to her, like her five-year-old daughter, 24 years later. So, well, oh, yeah. well, here's the deal. Here's the deal, Aaron. <laughs> I, I love you, man. I'm not going to leave you out there in the cold by yourself. Okay. I'm going I'm to tell you one, uh, the, uh, an embarrassing story where I stuck my foot in my mouth and we both got a laugh out of it, but I was doing a feature for pole position magazine and mm-hmm. it was about who it basically, who are you named after? Okay. <laughs> and so, I mean, this is the, the, one of the dumbest brick dumb things I've ever done, but I, it, it came out wrong. I was trying to ask another question. It came out wrong. I went up to Mark, Martin Truex and I said, Martin, I said, Hey buddy. Hey man, how you doing? I said, can you tell me who you're named after? And he said, uh, my dad, <laughs> and, and what I was trying to say was, where was the name Martin? Come, did it come from? Did it come from a grandfather? Did it right. come from an uncle? But the way I said it, and he, he kid me about that for a couple of years. Hey man, so you knew I'm named after my dad, right? <laughs> it's like, yes. Since your name is Martin Truex Jr. I just, it just came out wrong. So we got a, a nice laugh out of that for a while, but you know, sometimes things just don't click, you know, but I was trying to say, is it a family name? Is it an uncle? Is it a grandfather? And where does it originate? And anyway, it came out wrong. So, hey, we all all have things that happen that go wrong, and you just put your head down and keep walking and go from there. (laughs) You definitely, in my case, put your head down. It was was a moment of clarity that I had that was uh, definitely pretty incredible. And I would say... Uh, in your defense, Ben, mine was more embarrassing, but fortunately, <laughs> nobody knew about it. I just st- stood there in shock and shame. I was like, how did I never make this connection? I'm here Monday through Friday, uh, in many cases, Sunday to Sunday, um, and had never thought of that. It, it never you know, it never came to me. It happens. Uh, it, it does. Yeah. Another one of the cool things that, that I've experienced there was in March of 2017. So at this point, I think nobody knows outside about the Roval. We had already, you know, we'd been talking about it. Um, I was already, you know, we were putting together some PR plans, and this had been in discussion already. This is a year and a half before we run the first Bank of America Roll 400, but at the time, it's not really been uh, publicized much. You know, we don't, they don't know yet what what we've got in store. And frankly, one of the big reasons they didn't, people didn't know it yet was because we hadn't decided what we wanted the track to look like yet. So, Marcus Smith, President and CEO, Speedway Motorsports. Uh, has his friend Mario Andretti uh, come to Charlotte. And, and Mario's raced at Charlotte before. He ran the National 500, the fall race, back in the late 60s one time. I think it was for the Wood Brothers, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. But uh, so Mario comes out to the Speedway, and I meet Mario in the, in the, the pits, and he hops in uh, this million-dollar Porsche uh, to, to hot lap the Roval, this is not a publicity event. This is the people who know about this are myself, Willie, uh, the PR people, Marcus, Mario, and that's about it. Um, and uh, and so and there, there's a few others certainly. I think Marcus's brother David, who who um, gen- generously supplied the car and let me uh, sit behind the wheel of it too. So Mario goes out, and we we recorded 
him driving with Marcus. Marcus is sitting in the, the passenger seat, you know, and I think what maybe the plan they had was that Mario's going to kind of, you know, drive around the track, you know, I don't know, 60, 70, something like that. And, you know, say, all right, well, I like the way this, this turn shaping, but you know, we can make it a little bit tighter or, you know, there, there were a lot of technical things that they had in the discussion and they had those discussions, but Mario ripped around there. Like he was driving a formula one car. He <laughs> apparently topped out. He was 77 years old. It's easy for me to remember 77 year old, Formula One world champion, Daytona 500 winner, Indy 500 winner, in my mind, the greatest race car driver of all time. He hit 177 miles an hour that oh, day gosh. in that Porsche. He was flying. And uh, we, you know, I got to interview him afterward and talk to him about his impressions of, you know, the very rough outline of the Roval at that point. We did make some changes, of course, before the first race. And he's very complimentary. Mario's an absolute consummate professional. He came back for the Roval race in 2019 and was the Grand Marshal, which was super cool. But yeah, you know, a lot of fun experiences there, Ben. Uh, you and I, having grown up in North Carolina, you know, it, it is, uh, it, it's the it's the mecca of motorsports. It's America's home for racing. So many different names. Um, it, it's There's so many fun things that, that we've experienced there. Um, I want to hear another one, one or two from you. I know some of the things we've experienced a couple rows away from each other in the media center, but what are some things that you've experienced at Charlotte Motor Speedway in the past, Ben, that I may not know about? Well, I mean, I can tell you one, a personal story, a little bit involved in racing, but I mean, this is something we, we still laugh about. And I, and I think the good Lord, I, I wasn't caught doing what I was doing, but I did a story there for NASCAR Illustrated in 19, January, 1995 Okay. about, you know, being, uh, driving a race car, going to a driving school and Andy Hillenberg had the driving school, the fast track driving school there. Yeah. So I decided just for fun, for kicks and giggles, I would ask Bobby Allison to come along and sort of be my coach. And he agreed to do that. So we're real tight friends anyway. So he said, yeah, I'll, I'll go with you. So he was there with me and I had a little trouble getting up to speed the first day. And because I was just a little bit intimidated about, you know, going around, I didn't want to hurt their car. It's basically honestly why. And he, I come back in, I'm all giddy. Hey, how you doing? How, I mean, how, how, did I, how do you think I did out there? He said, man, so let me tell you, he said, if you don't pick it up, my, my wife could, drive around you in our motor home you better get get start getting with it <laughs> so i was like all right i'll show you so then i started getting really really good because i got my confidence up and yeah, by the third more day aggressive. yeah yeah and by the he kept telling me you're not going to spin out you're not going to hurt the car they got them set up where you can't do that so it's like i got my confidence up okay finally figured out how to get through the dog leg because that kind of you know i couldn't figure that and finally he just said stop looking at the the outsides of the dog leg and just go through it and yeah. little things, you know, just trying to help me. So after three days of doing this, I'm up to about, oh, I don't know, 165 miles an hour. I mean, seriously, I was getting yeah. good to the point where I could put my right arm on the spider bar and just go down the back stretch one handed. I mean, I was really having fun with it. And by the time you get good at it, that's when I say, okay, thanks for coming. You know, come back and see us. Something. I was like, wait, 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 I'm, I'm just now getting good at this, but here's the story I had. This is January. And I had on my driver's suit. We had some straight arrow driving suits, you know, when straight arrow was a sponsor at Bobby Allison Motorsports with right. Derek Cope. So we had identical driver suits on. I'm actually looking at a photo here in my office of that. And so it, it's over with. I got my helmet on the seat. I'm going down 85. I got this driver's suit on because it's cold. Okay. <laughs> so you just left the driver's suit on. 
Yeah, I just left it because I had to give it back some other time. So we brought them with us. So Bobby said, just hang on to it and we'll get it later. I That's said, a okay. power move, Ben. You could have stopped yeah. at the McDonald's drive-thru in a driver's suit. That's a power move. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I just about did stop. But I'll tell you why. I was going up I-85 back to Salisbury, and I'm in my little Chevrolet Cavalier, and I hear the, this clicking sound, and I couldn't figure out what the clicking sound was. Click, 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 click. I just couldn't figure it out. I looked down, and what was clicking was the speedometer and it had gone over past 110. Wow. And, and see, I was so used to doing 165 on the racetrack <laughs> that I, it didn't dawn on me that, Oh crap. You know? And I was like, Oh my gosh. And I geared down and I'm looking in my mirror and I'm back down to that creepy little 55 miles an hour. And I thought, okay, the funny part of the story is how would I have explained to the highway patrol? Here I am in a driver's seat <laughs> with a helmet on the seat and I'm doing 110 and there's no explaining that I'd still probably still be in jail, but I just <laughs> didn't because the, the feel of the car was so good at 165. It's like, I got so used to it. So when I got in my real car and I go back to 60 and 65 miles an hour, a hundred miles didn't. an hour less. <laughs> yeah. I just didn't. And so it felt so good. I wasn't thinking about it. And that clicking sound woke me up. It was like, what is that clicking sound? And it was the speedometer because it didn't, couldn't go any further. And I thought, man, <laughs> I mean, you, you'd still be you'd still be baking cakes with files and, and still coming to see me at the jail. That's I mean, wild. I'd still be under the jail. And that was 1995. But, yeah, just, you know, Charlotte has got it's, – it's a great racetrack for me. It's one of my favorite places. And there's, there's a million little stories like that. You know, I, I very quickly, Aaron, I can tell you one more quick one. And it was Bill Elliott. We went, I want to go back to Bill just for a quick second. Sure. And they were, they were running, I don't know, a lap down. This was sometime in the late 80s. And they were running a lap down, maybe 1990, 91. And, uh, but he was still with the, uh, the course team and the Elliott team. And somebody got on the radio and said, okay, if we just get a caution, we'll be fine and we'll get the slap back. And, so they go a few laps later, and somebody yells on the radio, "Caution! Caution! Caution!" And Bill, in that that North North Georgia accent, don't get too excited. I am the caution, you know, because he was the one that spun out. <laughs> oh man, you know, just stupid little stuff like that that you just laugh about. But he's like, "Don't don't get too excited. It's me. I'm the caution." But, you know, they used to have a lot of fun on the radio talking about stuff like that, all the teams. And they still do, I guess. But they, it, it's hilarious. We need to do a show sometime on, on radio chatter, what you hear, uh, you know, during the race, some of the funny stories. But, yeah, there's, there's, there's a million stories about Charlotte. Great, great stories. I'm still thinking about the Ben White knuckle ride or the, the Ben White driving experience down, down I-85 towards I'm Salisbury. You, man. I'm telling you, it was it was something, man. You dodged a bullet, Ben. I I did dodge a huge bullet, and I was like, oh my lord, thank you. I didn't get. I mean, I, I didn't mean to do it. Honest, yeah, I, honest, I, know, I, I know. My my speed was just so up there during on the racetrack. It didn't dawn on me because it felt so slow on the on the interstate. Anyway, that could have been that could have gone bad, but it was okay. It worked out fine. So. I think it, it probably in some way you know you can understand and relate to why race car drivers seem to get pulled over more often than. Yeah. Than the average person, and I, maybe I, it's not because they drive fast all the time. You know, knowingly they just kind of get into a rhythm, and you know, yeah. and that, that's that's what happens. Uh, I think probably is on a case by case basis. Jeffrey Earnhardt told me one time he was laughing about how he'd gotten pulled over for speeding like three times that week or something. And I was like, God, man, you know, how does that happen? And he's like, I, just, I don't know, it just does. Um, yeah. So, and and yeah. that very well could be the case. Well, 
Well, Aaron, I, if you don't mind, I want to share one more funny quick one about Charlotte, and we can move on to the. Then I would listen to thirty-five more stories of yours. Go ahead. <laughs> well, the, all right, this this really did happen, and this is nineteen seventy-five, and it happened at Charlotte, and there was a let's just say there was a prominent mo- female movie star that came to the Speedway as the Grand Marshal, and so she waves to the crowd, and and it's uh, and again, this is a person who is very well known. Uh, in the movie industry. I'm going to reveal the identity after you're done, but go ahead. Okay. All right. (laughs) So anyway, she, she is walking through the garage and they go into the driver's meeting. She and her entourage Mm -hmm. and Buddy Baker is in the room and she passes by Buddy and he mumbles to his friends that, boy, she looks like she's put on some weight. Oh no. Yeah. And so she stops in her tracks and she turns around and she said, I just can't believe that you would say something like that about me. I just cannot believe you did that. And I'm just going to, I'm going to find Humpy Wheeler and I am just going to report you and I'm going to have every, I'm just going to get, I'm just going to let him know how you are. I just need to know what is your name. And, and Buddy Baker looked at her and said, Daryl Waltrip. <laughs> <laughs> oh man Daryl Walter. and so that's a true story that really did happen so you know this, there's a lot of funny stuff funny yeah, stories absolutely and by the way that was Elizabeth Taylor yes it was <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's, uh, that's that's wild man that's, that's a tough crowd she had to deal with that day at Charlotte yeah, um, sure did but so one of the more recent cool experiences I had was a couple years ago um, we were given we had a little um, event with Toyota and with uh, a first-time winner in the Cup Series this year to make a little bit more recent, Christopher Bell, who is now in his second year in the NASCAR Cup Series and was not born uh, before, I think, any of the stories we've told today. Um, but we had an event with uh, with Toyota and, and Christopher Bell, and who is, has always been an absolute pro for me. He's helped me out doing some publicity things before and, and all super awesome guy i mean legitimately one of the nicest guys in the cup series now is christopher bell in my estimation so we have this event christopher bell he's given um media some rides around the roval leading up to the bank of america Roval 400 i think this was must have been 2019 season xfinity series by then so mm-hmm. um we are you know we, we got this souped up i'm trying to uh, pun intended souped up toyota supra thing is brand new hadn't even been for sale yet um, I don't think it was a prototype, but it was like, so if you, if you saw a Toyota super commercial about two years ago, you saw this red flashy Toyota Supra. So I drove that car, um, before the mm. event, I had to go stop and get, and get put gas in the car. And, uh, I, we were going to stop and wash it. And so we pulled up to the, um, Willie and I were, um, I drafted Willie in for, for moral support. And so he could, you know, ride shotgun with me. And so we take this, this awesome Supra, this thing that just, it, it rumbles when you just feather the throttle, just a fun thing to drive. Um, mm-hmm. we did not hit 110 on Concord Mills Boulevard. Would have been super fun, but we couldn't do that in that case. So we, we go up to, uh, I think we went to Auto Bell there in Concord and, you know, we're going to wash the car. So we pull in and, you know, get, get up there and everybody comes out and starts looking at it like, oh man, that's a nice car. Oh, that's cool, man. Where'd you get that? Um, so I'm getting ready to go in and get the thing washed. And they're like, you can't get that washed here. And I was like, why not? And he's like, it's too low. If you pull up there, it's going to, it's going to damage the bottom of the car. And I was like, <laughs> well, all right, well. well, that's okay. So had to pull out a line at Auto Bell and this really awesome super and then go across the street to Concord Mills to a, uh, a drive-in car wash. Did that. 
went back to the speedway after we put gas in the car and it was premium. I made sure not to put the wrong thing in it. That would yeah. be an absolute disaster. The likes oh, yeah. of going 120 on I-85. <laughs> yeah. um, so we get back to this event and Christopher Bell is doing his ride alongs. I wasn't going to participate. Um, but Will, our social guy, another one of my best friends, uh, Will had to leave early. He had a doctor's appointment or something. So he's like, well, you just take my spot and get in, get in the car with Bill and record and just, just ask him random stuff. And I was like, random stuff? And he's like, yeah, it's random stuff. Well, Ben, you know me. And for those of you who know me, that is my absolute specialty. It is one of my God-given skills that I can come mm-hmm. up with the most random, inane questions. So mm-hmm. Bell's given a few of these rides. You know, I hop in. I'm sitting shotgun with him. He's just ripping it around this place. I mean, we're flying. Um and I'm asking him questions like, you know, the, the, one of my favorites, Ben, was that uh, I said, why do we drive on parkways and park on driveways? And I'm recording this with my phone and he's purposefully like tail whipping through the corners to where like the video quality is less than stellar. Um, <laughs> and he just kind of looks at me and laughs like, you know, I've wondered that since I was a kid. So he's like really engaged in this conversation while he's like, you know, on the very edge of control in this streetcar and ask him all kinds of questions how many holes does a straw have is a hot dog a sandwich is cheesecake a pie or a cake uh christopher bell and i for the record both agree that cheesecake is a a pie um but you know you 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 can argue you can argue either way ben um but you could could go either way you could it was a fun it was a fun conversation at high speed around a racetrack uh in in one of these souped up cars and you know just listening to him talk about the track and about you know, we, we mixed in some, some technical discussion as well, but you know, some of it was like, you know, I was like, what's your favorite movie? And he's like, days of thunder. And I was like, Oh, it's my favorite movie too. Did you dress up as any of the characters when you were a kid? And he was like, nah, I wouldn't really dress up guy. And I was like, well, it makes one of us then. Um, <laughs> but you know, just super, super cool guy, relatable guy. Had they let me drive the, the car all the way around the Roval, um, I probably wouldn't have approached the lap times that Christopher Bell had. And to that point, Ben, I got to give Christopher Bell a shout out for winning his first race recently. Like I said, he's a super nice kid. I think we're going to see him win a whole lot more races. Um, I don't know who I could really compare him to from the past. It'd be a tough question, but right. you know, he's he's a super super cool guy, and I'm I'm very excited to see how he does in the future. And maybe he's going to bring one home at Charlotte in May if uh, if the Elliott clan can finally. Uh, in that Ofer streak they have of of winning at Charlotte Motor Speedway and Coca Cola Six Hundred, you got to think one of these years they're going to do it. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. And you know the funny thing about Charlotte and the Six Hundred, if you go back down through the list, there's a lot of drivers who became prominent drivers in the sport who took on their first victory and the longest toughest race on the circuit. If you stop and think about it, you know Jeff Gordon was one of those. Matt yep. Kenseth was one of those. Uh, Casey Mears also pulled off one and Austin Dillon. And, you know, it's just interesting to me. How do these guys who have not run 600 mile races before prior to their rookie season or whatever, and then they come in there and they just, they master the place and it, you know, 600 miles, 400 laps around Charlotte at a hundred and what 60 miles an hour yeah whatever that average is i mean that's that's a tough afternoon and you're out there with veterans who were racing before you were born so to speak in some cases and they come out and win these things it's just interesting and interesting to me as to how that comes together and we've seen that happen many times so with that said the 600 this year, I, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Christopher Bell could possibly, you know, be there for it. 
You might see a Ross Chastain. You might see somebody that you didn't think of who would emerge towards the end of the race and, of course, go to victory lane. And that, you know, obviously starts the win cycle. And I've always heard, you know, wins breed wins. I've heard Daryl Waltrip say that. Once you get that first win, and that first one is so hard to get, once you get that first one, then others come. And and, and Michael McDowell might be there uh, possibly in the 600. That car has always run well there with you know david reagan and other yeah. drivers so it's just that's what makes the 600 so much fun and if it, even if you go back to the very first race uh there in 1960 uh, a gentleman by the name of joe lee johnson of tennessee was the winner and that was more of an endurance race that day they had problems with the track coming up and and to the point where they had put screens on the fronts of the cars back in these back in that era so they wouldn't break the windshields out and there's the story of how Jack Smith was leading the 600 that year and hit something on the racetrack, a rock or whatever, part of the asphalt, broke the broke through the gas tank and they went in to the pits and tried to find something that would, you know, stop up the hole. Right. And as it turned out, they went to the men's room and got a bar of soap and put, uh, uh, you know, this is Bud Moore's team. One of the crews crawled up under the car and put a bar of soap in there and tried to to make it, you know, stay, but it didn't stay. And he went to the garage. But just interesting, lots and lots of interesting stories about Charlotte Motor Speedway, and and and, it, and the best part is it's local to everyone here in the Charlotte area. It's it's had that aura about hey, if you can win at Charlotte, you're really you made it in the sport. Still that way, and uh, so I always enjoy going to Charlotte. It's a lot of fun to to go to the track over there. Absolutely. So uh, in the a lifetime in NASCAR podcast, we have advertised that we talk about NASCAR topics, the drivers the people, the cars, the teams, the tracks. Well, today we're going to talk about something new. We're going to talk about sponsors. So there have been all kinds of, you know, legendary sponsors. We touched, Ben, in the past a little bit about, you know, STP, Wrangler, Coors, Budweiser, some of the bigger name sponsors. But today let's talk about some of the strangest sponsors that we've ever seen in NASCAR because this is a sport unlike anything other than European soccer that, European football, whatever, it, that sponsors play such an important role that you're likely to see so many different types of companies adorn a race car. I'm going to kick this discussion off, Ben, with uh, my personal favorite, a car that I saw race in person. Uh, Boudreaux's Butt Paste is <laughs> an American brand of skin cream that started out as a diaper rash remedy. And uh, it was it was created in the 1970s by George Boudreaux of Covington, Louisiana. I'm looking at this. I'm reading this off their website right now. And we are not sponsored by Boudreaux's Butt Paste. However, I would not rule that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, we're open. We're open to that. Yeah. Oh yeah. We're um, always open know, to that. This this space available here. So Boudreaux's Butt Paste sponsored uh, a Cup car that Jeannie Donlevy owned when it was driven by Kevin Ray, and then Kim Crosby's number 24 Boudreaux's Butt Paste Chevy in what was known as the Bush Series then. That's the car I remember seeing race. And, you know, it, the the craziest thing about this paint scheme, you know, and, and the, the sponsor, okay, yeah, it's it's different. It's out there. But they, the sponsor and the teams, they, they embraced this, man. And that was what was so cool about it was, you know, Mark Martin being sponsored by Viagra is kind of like, uh, why do I have to be sponsored by them? Like, really? So, mm-hmm. it wasn't the case to be Joe's butt paste. You know what they put on the back bumper of that car? You could have put anything on the back bumper. could have put Boudreaux's on it, and nobody would have said anything. They put in all caps, butt paste. 
<laughs> I mean, they owned it. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, to be honest with you, we've seen about everything that you could possibly see on a race car. Now, with that said, NASCAR does have the final say as to what gets to put on a race car, okay, because of many, many reasons. But you have to prove it through them. But a very quick story, going into this conversation for years and years in the very, very, very beginning of NASCAR, you would see things like Joe's barbecue, or you'd see some kind of burger place, or you'd see most likely you'd see Joe's Philip uh, filling station, wrecking service, wrecker service, whatever. Okay. So in the seventies, you got more into the STPs and the perlators and more automotive type sponsorships. As we got into the eighties, and we had seen the movies like Stroker Ace, and we had seen, and later on, Days of Thunder came. But the Stroker Ace movie was, featured a part where Burt Reynolds was on top of a float wearing a bird suit with, you know, lots of feathers and all. And everybody oh, thought, yeah. okay, this Clyde is, Torkel's this, Chicken Pit special. Absolutely. And this is going to be, everybody's like, all right, that's just too far fetched. That's just not ever, ever going to happen in NASCAR. Well, Lo and behold, you know, when you when you're standing on pit road and you see the planter's peanut jar walk by you with the tall hat, (laughs) you're like, okay, we've arrived. And and that's That's what happened in the 80s and early 90s. You had everything you could imagine on on the quarter panels of race cars, which was great for the sport because it opened up to if you've got the money and you want to advertise and you want to go in front of the fans. We have a car for you, our hood or quarter panels that we'd love to put your name on. Great. So we, we saw things like, you remember the underalls? Uh, yeah. Sponsorship, Sterling Marley. And Sterling caught all kinds of crap for that. You know, the, the underalls thing. A great sponsor, don't get me wrong. But it, first time, really, that's that we had seen something like that on a race car. There was one called, I believe, uh, Slender U. And it was a pink race car. And it had a... It was outlined down the sides, or maybe on the side and across the top of a, like a tape measure. And that was kind of cool. And you, know, you just see anything on these race cars. And, and, and it's a great vehicle, no pun intended, for fans. Well played. Yeah, thanks. And so to, to put their name out there. Yeah. And and so, but seriously, I remember thinking when I saw the Stroke Race movie and how weird and, and crazy that it was a comedy and it was really funny. But oh, it's, it's a like, classic. Really? Yeah, it's a great movie, and and the Jim Neighbors was in there, and and you're right, the Clyde Torkel Chicken Pit special, and it was so funny, but it's like that'll never. I mean, that's just too far fetched. Well, wrong, because it <laughs> ended up being you could anything you could possibly imagine you'd see on the side of a race car back in that era, and and even now, you know, and and one funny tidbit as a postscript to what you're talking about with uh with the the that movie, Stroke Race. Uh, Tim Richmond, Dale Earnhardt, Kyle Petty, several, uh, Harry Gantt, several Cup Series drivers had cameo roles in that. Mm-hmm. Tim Richmond's cameo from Stroker Ace is what got him interested in wanting to do Hollywood. So it would have been interesting to see how that would have uh, would have shaken out were we to see it. But uh, then when I think of the craziest sponsors, one that really comes to mind for me and uh, for the the Gen Z millennial audience is so spring 2010. Tommy Baldwin Racing. They -hmm. show up to the Shelby American, which I thought was such a cool name for a race at Las Vegas in 2010, Mm -hmm. with a car. And the front of it is bright pink. And the middle of it is hot pink. And the rear is bright pink. And it's sponsored by Kim Kardashian. (laughs) You would think that, like, all right, he just made it up, right? Like, there's no way. No, it really is. So Kim Kardashian had this fragrance. It was, I guess it was a... um, 
perfume, I would suppose. And right. they sponsored Tommy Baldwin's number 36 car in a cup race. And Mike Bliss, I think, was a driver of the car. Pretty wild. For me, that that was that might have topped the the Boudreaux's butt pace in terms of just like, man, that is, you know, you want to talk about ambitious crossovers. Kim Kardashian and the Cup Series is an ambitious crossover. Um, but, you know, there's, there's been a lot of them. And, and, you know, in the IndyCar world, I'll never forget Marco Andretti, uh, my favorite IndyCar driver. 2008, he was sponsored by Blockbuster, and Blockbuster was promoting the Indiana Jones movie that came out. So his fire suit for the Indianapolis 500 that year, which he almost won, uh, was designed like Indiana Jones's suit, and he had to wear the Indiana Jones hat going through driver intros, which to me would be a, a disaster. But you know, yeah. I think these it, guys they get it; they know what they have to do. Right, and and there's another one, a recent one that comes to mind is the insurance company that uh, Martin Truex has had run with, uh, I believe, the '78 team, and maybe with the '19 Gibbs team, where his driver suit actually looked like a shirt and tie. You remember yeah, that? And, that was cool. Auto and, owners. And, Auto owners, yeah, and that was kind of neat. So I mean, there's nothing really off the table if it's if it's in good taste, and NASCAR can approve it. Of course, they'll do it. And and but it's so cool because you've had airlines sponsor, you know, Piedmont Airlines with yep. Terry Levani, Ricky Rudd, you've had U.S. Air, you've had oh my lord, the the list is so long. You know, Bobby Allison had the Piper aircraft sponsorship back in the in the late 80s and i mean gosh it's just so many things but see that's the that's the cool part about sponsorship on a race car fans can relate to their their favorite driver but he's also in an iconic type uh you know paint scheme on the car it could be anything in the world but it was so funny how it started and a lot of times those sponsorships of the late 40s was i will you know, if you'll put my name on the car, come by here and I'll feed your crew food. That's how it started. I mean, there was no money <laughs> yeah. in those days, really right. no money. And then you got into the Coca-Colas and the RC Colas with, say, Buddy Baker, Bud Moore in the early 70s. And, and you know, some more of the, the Fortune 500 type household type sponsorships that was tied with Ricky Rudd and Ricky Craven. Yep. Daryl Waltrip. So it's just it's just been fun to see what all. But yeah, you've had some that come across that were just amazing. It's like really did they put that on there? But yeah, it, really a lot of fun to to go back and look at some of these paint schemes. Absolutely, and you know you you brought up a great point, Ben, about how it engages fans. Uh-huh. So another thing that engages fans is merchandise memorabilia. And Ben, you and I through the years we've collected a lot of it. It is something that's not unique to the NASCAR and the motorsports community, but it's such an ingrained thing, and particularly diecast cars, which have been around for for you know more than thirty years in NASCAR. But mm-hmm. the memorabilia industry in NASCAR has so many different things. There's so many different things people collect. They collect diecast cars. They might collect T-shirts, magazines, race programs at Charlotte Motor Speedway. When my good friend, the late, great Sam Bass designed the covers, those things are super collectible items as well. There's so many different things. And then you get into like the sheet metal and the actual parts mm-hmm. of the race cars. There's welcome race fans banners. There's all kinds of things you can collect. But having said that, Ben, uh, I'll, I'll let you dive into this first. What are some of the coolest pieces of NASCAR memorabilia that you own? Well, uh, I sort of went down the, the sheet metal route, and I don't really know how that started, I guess. Well, I, I do back up a little bit. Back in the mid-'70s, I lived in Welcome, North Carolina, not far from where RCR, Richard Childress Racing, is located today. 
and like a quarter mile away. Uh -huh. My friend, my friend and I, Mickey Carnes, Mickey and I went to the Darlington race. Long story short, after it was over, there was a, a quarter panel off the Jenny Don Levy truck s'more Ford. Yeah. That Dick I Brooks. Said, that was Dick Brooks, right. And I said, oh, that'd be kind of fun to have. And, and I asked one of the crew guys, what are you going to do that? We're going to chunk it. You can have it. And back in those days, you know, you really didn't, the, the teams, I've heard the Wood Brothers say they had dumpsters in the back. They just throw all that sheet metal in the back and have it crushed. Nobody thought about it back then until probably the mid nineties is when people started thinking about it. Yep. But, uh, I, you know, and my dad finally asked me one day, he said, what are you going to do with that old truck? Small piece of sheet metal. And I said, oh, I don't know. Well, because we're getting ready to move and I said, I, I'll chunk it or whatever. And I wish I hadn't because I didn't know what the future held on that. Yeah. But to answer your question though, I've, I've got about, uh, I don't know, maybe 60 pieces that have just yeah. given, yeah, just given to me, uh, along the way. And I haven't really, honestly, I've not solicited for these. I just said, you know, I'd have a crew member or a driver or somebody say, Hey, would you like a, a piece of sheet metal or a hood or a side? Yeah, sure. I'll take it. And I really honestly don't know how that that developed i guess part of it is because i love nascar history and maybe it's just kind of my way of hanging on to the history but yeah. i have a building yeah i have a building out behind my house and it's about 100 yards behind the house and and uh i call it uncle ben's lunchroom and the reason i call <laughs> it that was because my grandfather who's named ben also who's passed away now but he had a place in Dalton, Georgia, called Uncle Ben's Lunchroom. And it was a small place that he and my dad ran back in 1940. Oh, that's and, cool. Yeah, and they, it was one of those places where you could go in and get a sandwich, a hot dog, soup. No no place to really sit down. It's called like a, a bar kind of thing around the outside wall. Yeah. In that era, that's what a lot of people did. You go in for a quick sandwich and be bop out. And so I thought, well, my name's Ben, named after my grandfather and my father. I'm just going to, I'm going to call it Uncle Ben's Lunchroom. So I spent a good year probably putting these pieces of sheet metal up on the ceiling and on the, you know, on the rafters and on the sides of the inside of the building and built a bar kind of area where we could, uh, you know, grill burgers and, and just an old 1940s sort of motif out there in an old oven and put in a wood stove and a flat screen. So it's kind of a place to just entertain and have some fun. That's awesome. And, you guys yeah, don't and, serve fiberglass sandwiches or anything, do you? No, we don't. We're not. <laughs> that's not on the menu right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But uh, no, we just, you know, I always wanted a restaurant and that's just one of my passions or whatever. And my yeah, wife that's cool. very, well, my wife very nicely said, well, you get a, a, a restaurant and we'll get a divorce. And so <laughs> I said, okay, how about this? How about this compromise? I'll have my little Uncle Ben's lunchroom out there, and then we can just entertain friends as we did last night. We had a little cookout out there, and it was just a lot of fun. But when we get further into the podcast and we maybe get into doing some television or some some visual, I should say, yeah. maybe we, I could show some fans what the lunchroom looks like. But it's just something. And I got into collecting model cars. I had a couple of thousand model cars at one time. And uh, I, was, I sold my collection after someone come along and offered me the right price. And some days, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I think I did the right thing. And Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I wish I hadn't sold them. I hear you. But, uh, yeah, it's one of the, but I've, I've just enjoyed the, the sheet metal thing. And if I had had the presence of mind back in the mid-70s to grab a Kale Yarbrough, a Holly Farms door, or a David Pearson hood or whatever, oh, Gosh, man, that yeah. would have been awesome. But nobody was doing it back then. It wasn't really a fad. It wasn't really a thing. Yeah. And I think that sort of came up in the 19, early 90s, maybe. Mm -hmm. I've got some pieces out there from – 
from back in the early 90s. But very quickly, Aaron, I'll tell you one piece that I'm really, really proud of. And I, I wrote a book. I had the honor of writing Robert Yates' book back in the in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And he, he called me to the shop one day. He said, hey, can you come over here? I got a, lo- a little something for you. And I said, sure. So I dropped by there after work one day. And he was very gracious and very kind. He gave me a Davy Allison Haveline hood. Wow. And it, and it, it hangs out there in a very prominent place, and I would never get rid of it because Robert gave it to me. And it's just, I don't know. I, I just think if I had, if, you had, if a psychiatrist said, well, why do you do this? It's because it's just my way of hanging on to history. I yeah, go back just, there. You connect with it. Yeah, I do very much, and I can go back out there. And, and there's a story for each one of those pieces that's out there. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't have any more room now. I've got every square inch out there. I don't know that I could put another piece in there. I might. I might be able to slide a, a piece or two in, but I've got to stop at some point. I can't and, rule it out yet. No, I, I don't, I'll never rule it out because there's too many neat sponsorship uh, paint schemes and wraps and stuff nowadays. And, I, you know, if one came my way, I certainly wouldn't turn it down. So, Ben, I got to be honest. I don't think your collection's complete until you got a Boudreaux's butt paste rear bumper and a Kim Kardashian <laughs> quarter panel somewhere. I, I tell you what, man, I, I would. I think that would be the coolest. It would. It would. To, to have something neat. And, and that's what's so great about them. You just, they, they raced on the racetrack. Someone wheeled them around, mm-hmm. at, in some cases, 200 miles an hour. There's a story behind each one. And it gives you a chance to sort of revisit the past and revisit the driver a little bit. So, yeah, well, I hope to be able to show our fans that area someday. And when we when you get into a visual situation with uh, a life in NASCAR, a lifetime in NASCAR, I hope it worked. Appropriately, I have two pieces of sheet metal. And the first I'll talk about, this being episode nine, we'll talk about the Elliots, is I have the, the top half of Chase Elliott's number nine door uh, from one of his NASCAR Xfinity cars, the Napa car, in 2014. And I bought that for $25 in 2014. I feel cool. very confident that it is worth much more than that now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the yep. other I have is uh, my parents at my home where I grew up in Valdez. Uh, we have a, uh, I think it was only 20 bucks, so I got it several years ago. The front bumper, whole front bumper from Jimmy Hensley's Crown Oldsmobile in the 1990 oh, cool. Bush Series. So I have I that, that too. So I got those. But for me, then, the things I've always collected were the diecast cars from the first time they came out. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about diecast cars in, in more depth later, but pretty much when diecast cars came out, I started collecting them. Um, and I always have. I went through periods where I, I didn't buy any, but it's, it's always been a passion of mine. I have a, you know several. One of the most valuable I have is Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s Hallodega Amp Energy car from 2010, the 124 scale, of what I deal in. Uh, mm-hmm. That car... Saw that car in person at Talladega in 2010. Um, I got that car at an antique store in Mooresville for $35 about six or seven years ago. So I checked on eBay recently, and now they sell for $195 to $250. You're the man. (laughs) That was was a good purchase. Um, And I've got Dale Jr.'s Wrangler car from when he won at Daytona. I got a bunch of Dale Jr. cars, Dale Sr. cars. Uh, Two of the most recent ones I got were um, a Kyle Petty 2001 car and a really interesting Ernie Irvin uh, Texaco Havilland diecast from 1994 with a, a, a very interesting history to that paint scheme on the car. We'll talk about that when we go into the history of diecasts because I did a little bit of digging and figured this out recently. So that's a teaser for that. But Ben, another thing I, that I, I have a real passion for is I collect NASCAR hats. So I got a Tim Richmond Folgers hat. I oh, have wow, that's cool. a Dale Earnhardt uh, Wrangler hat with the the Wrangler Dale Earnhardt patch on it from 1986. 
I have an 85 Wrangler hat, like Dale Sr. wore an 85. I have um, a Jeff Bodine, the OG Jeff Bodine, uh, five-star Levi Garrett hat. I, I used to, so I wore these things like, you know, Ryan Blaney wears these things now, and he is he has captivated a whole new generation of NASCAR fans that are wearing old-school stuff. Well, I was mm-hmm. doing this years ago. When I was a freshman <laughs> in high school, we had hat day, and I wore my Levi Garrett hat. Um, and they made me put a sticker of the Levi Garrett logo, but, uh, oh, wow. yeah, so I got, I got censored. Um, but <laughs> I, my granddaddy got that hat at North Wilkesboro in 1985 and he kept it in a box for, you know, 10, 15 years and then, uh, gave it to me. And so I've worn it, you know, quite a few times since then. It's super cool. That hat now sells for like 60 bucks on eBay too. So it's amazing how valuable these things have gotten to people. Um, I have, you know, a bunch of those, some, Dale Jr. hats. I have a 1989 STP Richard Petty hat, which is one of my oh, favorites. Wow. That's neat. I got um, a, a 1990s STP hat autographed by the King that I got at, at Petty Enterprises. Um, so a, a pretty awesome hat collection. I'm sure I'm selling some of these short. I got Davey Allison um, Haviland hat. So all, all kinds of old school ones. Um, my dad gave me his uh, Jim Goodrich Dale Earnhardt six-time Winston Cup champion hat that I still wear on occasion. Um, got a, a Bill Elliott Coors one. My dad has uh, his uh, Ty Daryl Waltrip one still. That'd be a cool one to have. Um, yep. I got a bunch, a bunch of hats. But Ben, the number one thing in my collection as far as racing memorabilia has to be, uh, and it's not super, na- it's not technically NASCAR related, but Tim Richmond ran the Indianapolis 500 in 1980 and won Rookie of the Year. He was driving a car sponsored by Uno, the card game. Yep. He was the fastest qualifier as a rookie, but the way they do pole qualifying, he didn't make that run on pole day, so he couldn't start first, but he was the fastest qualifier. So I have Tim Richmond's jacket from the 1980 Indianapolis 500. Really? Yeah, it awesome. has Uno Racing Team on the back. It's got Tim um, embroidered on the front. Um, wow. I got that from his sister, Sandy Welsh, about seven years ago. That is um, so cool. Yeah, that that's one I'm really proud of. Um, <laughs> I have a pair of sunglasses with Hendrick Motorsports logo on them that were Tim's. Um, I've got some some cool Richmond stuff, but that that Tim Richmond Uno jacket hangs up in my um, in my closet. I haven't worn it for a couple of reasons. One doesn't fit. Two, um, <laughs> Tim mm. Tim was. I mean, again, he's an IndyCar driver, you know. Um, and then you know, two. I certainly not, don't want to damage it. But the thing looks like it was just made. It was taken great care of. Um, I guess when Tim stopped racing IndyCar, I don't know if he gave it to, to Sandy, his sister, but she always took good care of it and then mm-hmm. decided in the summer of 2014 that she was ready to part with it. I had written a profile about Richmond for Speedsport Magazine that summer, and she was one of the people that I had, had sourced for the story. And so, you know, she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm selling some of Tim's stuff if you're interested. And I think Matt Yoakum, the, um, the Fox TV NASCAR reporter got one of his old helmets and mm-hmm. I, uh, went by her house and, uh, happened to find that Tim's IndyCar jacket was there. And I was like, I gotta have that. So I have that's that in cool. my closet now. That's, that's, that's a special one with a, with a really neat story. And I think Ben, to your point about why we do these things, it's a question that I think people who can't relate will always ask, but it. To me, uh, I think, to put it plainly, I think it's just about maintaining that connection and that closeness with something that you have a passion for. And I think everybody mm-hmm. has something like that. It may be cards. I have a bunch of racing cards as well. Um, you know, I, uh, I've collected NASCAR cards for, you know, decades and decades. I don't buy many of them now, but uh, about five years ago, a quick story at Charlotte Motor Speedway. It was at work. I, uh, I had ordered a box of 2000 SP Authentic racing cards 
Those have the Jimmy Johnson rookie in them and uh, Kurt Busch, Kevin Harvick, Dale Jr.'s first Cup Series cards. Um, super valuable. Well, I searched for these on eBay for like a couple of years and never found any. Somebody posted a box for like 40 bucks. These things would go for 400 easily. Didn't know what they were. Wow. Unopened. So I got it and yep. opened it up at work. And Keith Waltz, who uh, you know very well, Keith worked yeah. in PR for Daryl Waltrip in the 90s for a long time. And Keith is uh, an uber accomplished NASCAR journalist and editor for decades. Uh, Keith edits all of the writing that I do, as as it were, for all the publications that for which I've worked. Um, Keith was 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 in my office, and we were talking. So I, you know, tore open the box and started opening them. He's like, "Why are you opening those?" I was like, "Man, I want, I bought them. I want to see what's in them." So as I open, as I as I say that, I see on the back of the pack "Sign of the Times." So they had two autograph cards per box. You didn't know who they were, and. So I was like, all right, you could read it. And it's like, congratulations, you've received a card autographed by so-and-so. Well, I wanted mm. to wait for the surprise. So I turned it over real quick, took the cards out of the pack and, you know, went through. And there's like, there's a Dale Jr. There's a Kevin Harvick. I was like, man, this pack's really awesome. I think there was a Dale Sr. in there. And then you get the last card and it was an autographed rookie, Jimmy Johnson. Um, wow. So, yeah, and um, so I still have that one, certainly, and uh, it's not not one that I would sell. I I showed Jimmy that at a press event we did with him a a month or two later. I had to bring that. I just put it took it in my pocket, and I was like, Jimmy, pull this out of pack a couple months ago. Do you remember these days? And he looks at it, and he goes, man, that's old. That's uh, that's back in the day. That's back when they made me go go to their their place and sit at a a table and just sign those things for hours. Um, So he (laughs) had he had a memory of that. So yeah, yeah, well, yeah, you might be able to put your your future children through college with that. You never know. (laughs) Hey man, you never know between the sheet metal and the diecast, the jackets, hats, pictures, programs, cars, all kinds of stuff. You never know. But it's uh, it's definitely pretty special. I think you and I both have a, a shared passion for some of these things. Oh, we do. And I just love, like I said, when I go out to the lunchroom, as I call it, I just want to, some days I just sit there and I just look and I think back on all the, the neat stories or the neat paint schemes. And every, like I say, every one of those pieces has a story. And I don't know, it's just something that it means a lot. It might not mean anything to anybody else, but it means a lot to me. And it's nice decor when you have some friends over to grill a burger and, and watch a little, like a lot of times I put old races on, on the flat screen. And, you know, I remember one time Bobby Allison came over just for a burger. And of course, guess what I had playing on the flat screen? It was the 1988 Daytona 500. How appropriate. Yeah. And just asking him questions about, Hey, you remember this? And that, of course he doesn't remember that race because of the head injury, but you know, it's just kind of fun. It's like, man, my hero right here is watching the Daytona 500 he won in my lunchroom. It's just neat. It's just fun. That is super cool. So, and, and, like one of the companies that that uh, put together racing trading cards back in the day, it was called Finish Line. Ben, mm-hmm. I think yep. we have then crossed the finish line on a really exciting episode nine. I learned a, some really cool things about you today, and um, I have offered up <laughs> scary. A, I have offered up a story to people that was very embarrassing to me as far as learning the uh, history of Lugnut's head and why he is shaped the way it is because um, yep. of the building which I've worked for the better part of five years. Um, but Ben, it's been a blast as always talking with you, chatting up with you. Can't wait to do it again soon for you guys. We'll be back with episode 10 faster than Kurt Busch can race an IndyCar. We'll touch on that sometime in a future episode as well. But in the meantime, throw a rating our way, wherever you're listening, we'd love to hear your feedback. Ask us some questions on Twitter, uh, the at NPP mag Twitter account, the NASCAR pole position Twitter account is a uh, one-stop shop for places for you guys to 
read their uh, their weekly um, racing stories and all the the YouTube videos those guys do like Eric and all that it's, it's a fantastic thing the the weekly race preview out of the groove is really cool um, it's also where the our, our podcasts house as well you can also of course listen to it on several different options including YouTube um, but we, we appreciate you guys feedback would love to know uh, if you got any questions for us ask them you know we, we'll, we'll do our best to answer them and if, if we don't know them then we'll just pretend that we do um, <laughs> but you know such a fun such a fun ninth episode Ben um, yep. look forward to doing episode number 10 but in the meantime for Ben White I'm Aaron Burns. I want to thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of A Lifetime in NASCAR. We'll be back with another one very soon. But until then, so long, everybody. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.